0: what's up everyone how's it going anthony ramirez here i am your host for academics and amigos this week i am interviewing my friend and fellow academic in the making manny grajales we will be talking about his research his love for avatar the last airbender and lucha libre so with that being said let's get started with this episode and see what y'all think enjoy I am here with my good friend Manny uh, Grajales, who's a fifth-year PhD student at Texas A&M University, and who is focusing on history. Manny, what's up, my dude? Hey, how's it going, Anthony?
1: Thanks for having me. Um, Just this is amazing that you're doing this. You know, you're and you're chasing and succeeding in bringing this type of thing, this type of outlet, not just for you know academics. Uh, but also for just people who you see that you can spread your message you can show your work and we can talk about just not just our work but life you know so this is beautiful I'm happy that you're getting to this
0: dude I appreciate that thank you so much like thank you (laughs) that's very (laughs) awesome dude thank you thank you um so every episode like especially if it's a person who's in academia the first thing that i like to know about is like what does the research entail and so i i'd love to know that because i think like as long as you and i have known each other we really like you know a little bit about my research but i don't know a lot about the research that you do per se and so i'm curious like what type of research you do because i know it's in history but mm-hmm. like what it, like what do you do exactly so, my research for my dissertation
1: is looking at the Puerto Rican anti war movement, specifically currents that were in the United States. Um, and I'm looking at a longer trajectory. So, instead of just focusing on Vietnam, looking at these currents and discussions of Puerto Rican anti war activity from World War II until Vietnam, and specifically looking at social movements and solidarity campaigns. So how do, um, like for, the, for World War II, for instance, how do Puerto Ricans, mostly on the island, how are they communicating with the, with the Puerto Rican communities in New York mm-hmm. about the war, um, either from a religious, moral, or um, anti-colonial sentiment? sentiment? Mm-hmm. And how do they create allyship with others who stand for either religious, moral, and um, just anti-colonial um, discussions against combat, and how do you look? And looking deeper into these ideas of solidarity networks, there's a lot of literature on that, where you're looking at this idea that these these different communities come together for a single purpose. But even in that single purpose, there's a lot of clashing because mm-hmm. of different ideologies, different race, different ethnicities. How do they come together, and what brings them apart? So that's a lot of what i'm looking at um and i'm hoping because i'm still like looking through all my material to start really honing in on these specific stories um so in my mind so far again this is just blueprint it could change i'm looking at like this um instance in the 1940s where Mm -hmm. when world war ii is about to when the united states is starting to prepare for world war ii um you're having discussions between u.s pacifists mostly white but also african-american pacifist communities Mm -hmm. discussing um outreach from puerto ricans on the island about being protected from the draft Mm
2: -hmm. either
1: through conscientious objector status or placement in civilian public service camps Mm -hmm. but also how the discussions of nationalism and independence emerge within these discussions and then another instance i'm looking i want to look at is this court case of this specific nationalist figure from the 1940s mm-hmm. um who keeps getting uh, summons draft summons even though he's paroled and can't break his parole in new in new york in the united states but his he has to go back and get uh to the draft board in manati but he's not allowed to go And then this case goes all the way to um, getting the attention of people within the United Nations as it's forming, because he's part of an anti-colonial network that's trying to bring the the post-colonial independence movements to to this new governing body. And it's also, he's like this glue in bringing these US pacifists in New York to the New York Puerto Rican community in 1943. And then some other stuff that connects into the 1960s. So one case I also want to look at is this um, instance of a draft rebellion by three soldiers, one Mm -hmm. uh, New York Puerto Rican who got his B.A. in history. Um, And this happened actually in Fort Hood, Texas. Oh, wow. So this was the Fort Hood Three case. So Dennis Mora, you know, he... He was one of the three that was, um, they refused their orders mm-hmm. and as they're about to be arrested, they they are getting their message out that these are the reasons why we stand against the war in mm-hmm. Vietnam. And this really leads to a lot, you know, Mora and his sister are part of these different committees. One, to make sure that him and uh, his fellow soldiers that resisted were exonerated but also part of that early pulse of the anti-war movement in 1965 in 1966, where you're also seeing Puerto Rican socialists on the island and in New York, part of these massive um, marches against the war in 1965 and 1966, which when you look at a lot of the literature on the anti-war movement in the 60s, it's either whitewashed or it's very, it's a uni- it has that idea of a universalist um, grouping Mm -hmm. That it doesn't really show that, hey, one of the invited speakers was the head of Movimiento Pro Independencia de Puerto Rico, Juan Mari Bras. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: He was one of the invited speakers in two or three of the marches between 1965 and 1966 in New York. And that you have within these coordinating committees a, a member of MPI. Her name was Dixie Bayo. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I still need to find more information on her. And then the one of the last things I want to look at is when the young lords are targeted ah. by the, because many of the members either war, either did join and later left, or they're targeted for the draft in the seventies, and you see it in their uh, newspaper Palante,
2: mm-hmm.
1: more focused not only on the war and on you know, just discussing what the US is doing in Vietnam, but also discussing how members are being targeted by like police or by the federal government for evading the draft. So those are a lot of things I'm look, I want to look at. I still have to, you know, go through all the notes and just start writing, but that's a lot of what I'm looking at
0: that's so fascinating dude like i think that that work is very deep and very in depth and i could see so much being done with it like it can even be broken down into different you know uh different different you know pieces of research you know um, yeah. or even like put together as a book mm-hmm. um i think that, that that's fascinating work and what in particular did what, what made you focus on this era in comparison to maybe another era of history
1: let me see. I'm, it all started when I was doing my master's. Mm-hmm. And I was doing my master's at Texas A&M Commerce in Commerce, oh, cool. Texas. Awesome, um, awesome. That's where I got my BA as well. Um, and it's funny, my first like research project, it was a spring class. It was a research-based class. And I wanted to see if I could do something with Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. I didn't think I could. Is at AM Commerce limited funding? You you only can research what you could find. Mm-hmm. So I took a chance and just looked at this specific uh, web database that gives you like information of where the archives in Texas are and what's in them. So I looked up Puerto Rico Independence. There was a hit at UT Austin for the James Farmer collection. Uh, James Farmer, the one of the leaders of Congress for racial equality. Mm-hmm so that was my first piece of the puzzle so my master's thesis was on that idea of interracial solidarity focusing on this um, group of pacifists mostly white but also you have like members including a philip randolph who was the head of the brotherhood for porters james farmer was briefly a member Um, you so you have this interracial community acting as an ally to puerto rican nationalists but there are also their debates within these of the direction to go since they're devout pacifists when it comes to how they project themselves in um non-violence, mm-hmm. very directed towards gandhi where the puerto rican nationalists take more of the irish independence movements like fight you know you fight for the defense of your nation against the colonial powers we're not going to incite violence but we will fight back so looking at those different dynamics and within that i didn't think about it at the time but when like my first year as a phd student i kind of lost what i wanted to do um it's that adjustment period and you mm-hmm. you know that very well you you know you come into a new place um for me it was i needed to know what i wanted to do and i lost that um I needed to find, a, like, needed to find my passion again. Part of it, you know, I, I got out of a, you know, I, I lost my relationship with my partner at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, 10 plus year relationship, you're going through that, first year in coursework, you don't know what you want to do anymore. And you're like, did I make the right choice of coming to a PhD? Mm-hmm. And my advisor, you know, Dr. Felipe I you know him and a few of his students um uh david cameron and laura Oviedo, you know they you know they had my back when i was going through rough times and specifically you know Dr. Inozo, he was like what do you want to do read you know take some time for yourself heal but also read read about different things within the topics that you are passionate about and that's how you'll find it mm-hmm. and through that I was going back through, like, reading different stuff on Puerto Rican history, reading stuff on Chicano history, and there was a few things. It was Lorena Lopez's book on the Chicano Moratorium, mm-hmm. the marches in the '70s that really hit me because, specifically, the examples she states for her own for her research subjects, but also for her own background. So for her. It was that, in one sense, you have that um, push against how the federal government treats you or, you know, discriminates against you. But also you have that service within, you know, certain Latino families where, you know, like for me, my grandparent, like my grandmother, my abuela, she has a picture on her, um, somewhere in her house all the time. Mm-hmm. And it has my abuelo in the center in his army uniform. He was drafted like months after he they left Puerto Rico for New York. So he served in Panama during the Korean War. Mm-hmm. And then littered outside of that, you have other family members, even to today, that have in their uniforms. So that's something Loreno Europeza calls the Hispanic tradition of service. That in one sense for me, I have that from my mother's side of the family, the Alvarez side. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I have a lot of the like religious and moral grapplings of is war just or is the idea of killing just because mm-hmm. I grew up as a Jehovah's Witness. I, mm-hmm. Even after leaving that tradition, you're unpacking so much of that, and especially that pacifist tradition within Mm -hmm. the faith that you do not serve in war. But also, you know, for me, another contradiction is, you know, being proud of my ethnicity, being proud of being Puerto Rican and having those political questions of independence in that as well.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So a lot of that has really informed some of the questions that were going through my head during that time where I just needed to read and remember what I wanted to do. And then I remembered this certain parts within my thesis that were stating, well, a lot of these figures you're talking about, they were were political prisoners, not just because they were nationalists, a lot of them were political prisoners because they were draft evaders Mm -hmm. during World War II. And how does that connect to getting to the 1960s and 70s, especially does there one question i really have is does their example from the 40s and 50s connect to the 60s and 70s generation because a lot of the 60s and 70s generation when they say the draft and other activism they were motivated either by seeing the new left seeing the black panthers or their own just experiences in their communities it wasn't from outside from political forces from the island in some ways sometimes it was sometimes it wasn't i want to so those are some of so that really drove my interest into this top, in this topic, plus my own story within it, having that tradition of service within, especially my mother's side of the family, but also my own religious upbringing. Mm-hmm. Which I left, you know, even though I left, that's still rooted in me.
0: Definitely, definitely. And I always find it so interesting when people describe their research projects like how much of themselves are truly within that project themselves you know just kind of like the way that you mentioned it um just right now is that we're all like our culture our roots in some way or another are always involved in our research even if we do something kind of like a little bit off topic that and then what we usually do there's still something that's always deeply rooted there that connects it back to like a part of us in some way. And I think that I personally think that that that's important because why do we want to pursue something that we don't care about? You know, it's like we Mm -hmm. have to have some type of emotional investment in some way or another to pursue the type of research that we want to do. And, you know, that's advice I give to students And to people who've asked me like, okay, what do you recommend that I do? Or like, well, if I go for a master's or if I go for a PhD, what's some advice you would give? And I tell them, find something you're passionate about and go for it,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: you know? And I could see that just through this conversation that we're having, there's that passion there. There's that deeply rooted, um, you know, aspect that means a lot to you, you know? And I think that that's important for research.
1: Oh, definitely is. You know, it, like you said, it's like, why do you want to do it unless you have some sort of investment? Even if you face blowback from, you know, the old guard in the academy who says yeah. you have to have like that, you have to have this distance. It's like, mm-hmm. um, I, actually, you don't. You know, and many of them who sit, state that claim, they never had that distance in the first place. If you mm-hmm. read their works,
2: yeah.
1: you know, it's you have to have an investment, you know, especially for the stuff we do. Mm -hmm. not only do you have to have an investment there you know and this is something i learned as i've been here through dr enos and some of the other professors i've taken there's an accountability factor you know you're whether you're researching in the archives or you know personal statements oral histories testimonials whatever you have this is not your story even Mm -hmm. if you have an emotional either emotional investment or part of a part of the story you have you have an accountability Mm -hmm. and especially you know those that are allowing you to see this story or give you a little insight into that story so i see it as a responsibility and accountability to make sure that that passion is not just i want to make this about myself
0: Mm -hmm. definitely like like, especially in history (laughs) there's 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 that need that you have to get the facts right and you have to also you know be be aware and be uh cognizant of uh, the people's stories that you are telling the narratives that you're uh portraying and getting across to because you know it means a lot to them and it, it's stuff that they went through and i can only imagine that they're like hey i want the truth to be told you know what I mean exactly so yeah so I mean it means a lot to them and for them to you know for you to be pursuing this you know that's amazing too that I I, I'm sure that it means a lot to them too you know especially these people who have gone through uh, a lot of the circumstances and and stuff that you're uh analyzing within your research
1: exactly exactly
0: by chance have you interviewed anybody involved within uh your your research?
1: That's the next step. I okay. haven't been able to um like 2 years ago I went on my first extensive research trip. Mm-hmm. That was mostly just focused on like looking at the documents and stuff.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um last year I went to do um oral oral history training at the ut austin they do a week seminar if you're accepted it's for the voces Mm
2: -hmm.
1: oral history project Mm -hmm. um, which is amazing um it's, it's specifically the community you get when you're in this seminar because you're with different people from around the u.s um and you are learning, you know, whether you're a novice or you're an expert, just, just needs additional training. You're getting training from two scholars who do amazing oral history work. Um, one is Dr. Maggie Rivas Rodriguez. Um, mm-hmm. She does, She was a journalist and she does amazing work. And especially with what she's ter- what the project has become and the stories that she has, she and her, those that have worked with her have uncovered specifically for latinx history Mm -hmm. it's you know it's amazing and that you know just either those stories of latino veterans or you know of people who later you know just did stuff in the community it's amazing and that she is saving those and making them publicly accessible Mm -hmm. she's saving those stories which are especially now very important
0: definitely definitely i think i think that you know what you're doing is very deep and it's 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 really amazing work and i look forward to hearing more about it in the future and uh you know to for you to be sharing this with us it's it's awesome Annie. so thanks so much for that um so a couple of days ago we had a really cool conversation about teaching okay um we had a couple. We had a really. We had a cool, uh, a bunch of different conversations, like, like that we had. Ex- that we were exchanging about, and a lot of it we'll be talking about today in in, in this episode, and um. But you know, to keep on the subject of uh, academia and 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 work, we we kind of had a discussion about pedagogy, and uh, I'm using these fancy words for for people. So in the, in other words, we had like for people who don't know like any of this stuff, like for my academics out there pedagogy for people who are not academic um it's it's like are the ways that we teach the ways that we teach it's the easiest way for me to describe that um we were describing our teaching methods pretty much and and uh manny and i have very similar approaches in the way that we teach and um i I like to know like what are some of the like in terms of pedagogy and your teaching methods manny what are some things that are really like important to you
1: Mm. so yeah this is funny because i don't know the fancy term so i always yeah. just go like um when i teach i try to i try to teach i try to be passionate about how i teach mm-hmm. because even if it's you know, for example an eight o'clock class you know and i hate mornings you want to set the tone because if the students who are begrudgingly there or even if <laughs> they're there because that's going to be the start of their day you want to hook them and especially for you know i have to hear this every time uh every semester uh history is not my favorite subject mm-hmm. i don't like history um so having that for me one having that passion for what you teach even if it's a part of the historical narrative that you're not a strong not my strongest suit
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know i'm gonna i'm gonna give it my best um teach with compassion you know that uh, you know understand for me i understand i'm not the only class these students have and especially with the pandemic with how everything happened i i made sure to live that
2: Mm -hmm.
1: you know have a set have a set criteria and send that out to them but also be compassionate you know and you know i teach I taught at A&M and I also te- taught at, I teach at a um, community college. So two separate worlds and mm. two separate, uh, two different class sizes, like Definitely. 140, <laughs> yeah. uh, my my, cla- my community college class, 30 students.
0: It's a big difference for sure. <laughs> it is, It is. but
1: you know, I still maintain that same, I, you know, that same mm-hmm. uh, philosophy that,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, be very clear on what my directions are, but tell them it's like, Yo, you have anything going on? Tell me, and we can adjust because nobody asked for this. Nobody mm-hmm. asked for us to switch to online. Um, and a lot of the things I learned from a lot of my students, you know, a lot of them had to move back home. And that mm-hmm. could be anywhere from Houston all the way to Venezuela. One of my students emailed me, Oh, said, wow. Hey, Mr. Grajales, can I turn this in a day late? I'm having internet issues. I just flew back to Venezuela. And I was like, don't worry about it. You know, That just get it in when you can. But also just some of the other adjustments that we sometimes don't think about, you know, it was like, maybe some of them are moving back to the farm and their parents are like, okay, you got to do farm work. Some mm-hmm. of them, they're one of seven siblings. So they're fighting for computer or bandwidth time. You know, someone that usually works well in silence, they're back home at their apartment and they're hearing all the noise mm-hmm. or their mother has to take another job because their father just was furloughed. A lot of the different things, you know, that we, and sometimes we don't think about when we think of our students at A&M, you know? Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's compat, you know, passion in what you do, compassion towards them while setting a straight guideline. But also, and I think most important for me is try to make history relatable. Break them from what they think of history as just a bunch of facts just a bunch of trivia show them that history connects to today but Mm -hmm. also use it mediums that they're able to understand because i could lecture about anything to, you know for hours Mm -hmm. um but there are certain points they're not going to get you know i can and with that you know i'll show them hey Here's an example from for those of y'all that are video game heads. Here's an mm-hmm. example of this concept through Red Dead Redemption 2. Oh, nice. Here's an example of this concept from this movie clip from 1996 uh, called Tuskegee Airmen by HBO with Andre Brower who plays Captain Holt in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. <laughs> yeah. Again, finding ways that even if it's an older film connected to today. That's because, awesome. Like that clip that I mentioned with Captain Holt. Um, it's where the tuskegee airmen are defending their um defend like um, let me go back benjamin like uh, andre brower is playing Cap- uh, colonel benjamin o davis so he's trying to defend the tuskegee Airmen project from mm-hmm. being uh removed and it really highlights the tension black servicemen face especially after 1943 and 1944 when they're allowed to finally serve in combat roles that they're asked to defend their country, but are treated as second and third class citizens
2: mm. in
1: the United States. So how do you reconcile with that idea of democracy, fighting for democracy when you, don't, you are not given democracy? So in that three minute clip that I usually give to them or show them, it highlights that point. And Andre Brower, Captain Holt, um, he just mesmerizes in that scene. And it really hits, it really hits home. A lot of times,
0: that's that's fantastic. Um, in my classes too, I, I I tend to do the same thing. Like we well, we both come from different discipline disciplines. Uh, your history on, on communication, but it's it's very similar in the way that I teach as well. Um, I, I I like to be compa- I love to be passionate about the stuff that I, I discuss and talk about. I I try to be empathetic as well because. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's like, I tell my students, I'm also a student myself, you know, I'm a student myself and I know how it is to be in your situation. You know, I'm currently in that situation too, just at a different level, but it, it, you know, I, you know, I still have work to do. I still have all that. So I understand what you're going through. I have internet trouble too. Sometimes, you know, sometimes the internet goes out here at the apartment or, you know, whatever, you know, but I think that those values that you incorporated into your classroom are, are great. You know, those are, those are the, the basic structures I think that one should have because if you show your students that you care, they're going to notice it, you know, Mm -hmm. they really do notice it. And that you know, they take note about that and they're like, man, this person really cares about what I'm doing. You know, I had a student this semester who went through some rough stuff and I would constantly check on them through the semester even as we went through uh this pandemic situation that we're in I would still mm-hmm. follow up with them through email I'm like hey how's it going are, are you doing okay you know uh, and if you need anything don't hesitate to reach out don't, you know I would constantly follow up with them and um you know little things like that go a long way you know it's true it's because um you know, I did the same, like for the
1: students, again, a class of 140. I knew a few by name or face to face, but when the pandemic hit after a while, I just got it in my head, you know, I've got to at least make the attempt to send a personal email to everyone just quick. Mm -hmm. And if they don't answer, so be it. If they do and just quick, so be it. And it's that little effort that goes a long way that they're, you know, that that they appreciate that, you know. Thank you for even taking the time
2: mm-hmm. to
1: check in, and or even prioritizing our mental health or how we're doing personally over just assessment. Mm-hmm. Is that was one thing I wanted to heart to um tell them, and I would tell them through email or when I videoed. I tried my created my first video for them, which was just weird for me. Yeah. I never. I had never filmed anything in my life and that was just, oh man. But, you know, I would tell them, I was like, if, you know, if you were struggling, if you were having, you know, whatever personally is going on, either tell me, and you don't have to tell me all the details or don't be afraid if you're just having like a day, Mm -hmm. take a few moments for yourself. The work will get done, you know, like, especially for my class, I was like, it'll get done.
2: Yeah, definitely. Focus on
1: yourself so you can recharge and re, you know, recenter yourself if you can, and if something deeper is happening, reach out. I, you know, I, if you need to rant, go ahead. That's yeah.
0: yeah do like it. a venting session, anything mm-hmm. like that. Like, I always welcome my students like that too. If you need events vent, if you need a rant or anything like that, but by, by all means vent awaits me i'm a listening ear you know mm-hmm, exactly you know and, and it's funny like students will actually take take us up on that offer and yeah. then, like and they'll just let it out and it's mm-hmm. like wow you know and it's like and then so we give them our perspective like hey you know what i know how you feel i've been there mm-hmm. you, know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know Exactly. and uh and during this pandemic i I noticed too a lot of these students and, and I've, i went through it too that that there were times where you're just like i didn't feel like doing anything you know it yeah. just it just i don't know it's weird like how this has had a psychological effect on us too in mm-hmm. terms of just like i don't know it was hard to describe that i remember i put it up on my instagram too like on a story that i created and i was just like i'm very driven i'm very motivated i'm very <laughs> i'm the type <laughs> of person that i like to persevere and just you know chive on and and kick butt and take names but today I just like no I don't feel like it you know and I had a lot of students straight up tell me that too they're like I just there's like a couple of days I just didn't feel like doing anything like Hmm. I understand that I understand that and take that time like you said Manny to recharge and to refocus your mind and then pick yourself back up and just go straight for it
1: yeah exactly you know you know it it's being it's being uh straight it's being honest Mm -hmm. about your own vulnerability and all this. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was important to, just like I could tell it was important for you to state that to them, to our students that, Hey, you know what? We have days where we struggle too. You know, I told my students explicitly one time I was like in an email, it's like, yeah, this week has not been a good week for me. Oh yeah. That's why I've been slow with grading your exams, but um, you know, that's, you know, that's why I have gone, gone up, done things the way I've done them, because I know if I'm struggling, you all are struggling with the adjustment of four or five, sometimes six classes to online. Some of those classes not very translated very well to mm-hmm. online, like your hard sciences or engineering classes and, you know, home dynamics that we don't know. You know, Mm -hmm. where some people might think, oh, they're going to be home at least. We don't know what their home situation is like. Or a few of my students, you know, they were like, we had to get jobs, you know, like some of them working 30, 40, 50 hours a week while juggling classes. So, you know, how it means more that you're willing to be vulnerable with them and say, you know, I'm and say, you know, I get it we're through we're going through this together instead of i'm up here and get it done anyway
0: yeah <laughs> I, yeah i
1: don't care about your life right now
0: exactly exactly you know just like you like you just said it right now too just telling them like hey we're all in this together just saying those words me goes a long way it goes more, it so much further than people truly realize because when you let them know like hey it's just not like me against you or and or you versus me or anything like that It's all of us are in this together, you know, and that's the way I feel like in every class that I teach, too, is that we're in this together because if I don't teach the right material to them or if I don't teach the right, you know, whatever it might be, you know, how are they going to learn properly? You know, I feel like it's my responsibility as an instructor to teach that to my students, to like show them the right way to do something or to show them the best way possible to get to point A to point a through z you know what i mean <laughs> uh, 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 uh and so i i feel that like to quote to do that uh paraphrase the spider-man quote it's like with great power comes the great responsibility um you know i, I feel that like like truly i do and uh I, it's just important for us as instructors to really like tell them that it's like hey we're in this together if i mess up i'm messing up on you all and that's mm-hmm. on me you know and exactly. i i tell my students that i'm like hey i messed up that's on me my bad. Mm-hmm. you know but let's let's go back and check out what i messed up on that way we can figure it out and get it right
1: exactly exactly
0: you know and then once they see that too they're like oh he is human you know? <laughs> you know i'm like you know i tell them like i make a lot of mistakes you know i make so many mistakes and I, I call myself on it and I'll be like, hey, I made a mistake or I made some mistakes here. My bad. But let's fix it. Or here, yeah. let's see what we can do, you know? Exactly. And uh it really does go a long way, like once you admit that. They're like, huh. You know, it kind of like it drops a facade of the ego too.
1: Exactly. And I think for like probably one of the the funnest things I've done in seeing them seeing my students learn is How I do their big pro. I always like to do a big project, but not in a here's this document, you know, or here's this choose a topic or here's this thing, write about it. What I do is I give them a prompt based on, you know, here's three things to look at choose a piece of visual media, movie, a TV series, or a video game.
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: one of my students actually did a, like music anthology of the anti-war mu- music of the 1960s. and I was like, go for it. Whoa. <laughs> um, and I had, and I had like two or three students do animes mm-hmm. as their, but the idea is choose something. Again, when we talk about that idea, they need to choose something they're passionate about to mm-hmm. pursue. Writing a paper is always the hardest thing, even for someone that's good, likes writing papers mm-hmm. it, or can do it. Writing a paper in a class that most of those students see as just we got to take it is a chore. Mm-hmm. So, my idea is okay, it'll still be a chore, but at least they're taking ownership of their choice. I, the only restrictions I really place is the chronological timeline based mm-hmm. on the class. Other than that, You know, most movies are pretty open and I've opened it a little bit more geographically this semester compared to last semester where last semester I had it isolated to US-based history events. This semester I was like, you wanna do a global history? You know, you wanna do something on, um, like one of my students did Love in the Time of Butterflies, Mm. which I was like, they did good on that. Um, You know, one of of my, two of my students did them on animes that had an American setting you know like video games everything from red dead redemption fallout series yeah yeah um and like one of my um let me see one of my students they you know trying to remember. There were so many, uh so many papers. But you know, it's that idea <laughs> I know that, the feeling. Yeah, I know you do. <laughs> but you know, it's that taking you choose a subject that you have a passion for. So for those that might have chosen military hist- like uh, saving private Ryan or something like that, either because right. they served or um or their family members served, they have a connection to that. For mm-hmm. those that choose a musical but tie it to a historical event, it's because they enjoyed that musical and they're like Oh, I never thought of the deeper history in that, like in like the musical Hairspray. Yeah, it was always a popular one this semester. Um, one of my students chose uh, chose uh, Peaky Blinders to focus on because he's a serving veteran right now, or he's a serve you know, he serves in the military, so he's looking at how military members reincorporate themselves into society while also dealing with PTSD. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they they choose. And one of my students even wrote on Avatar The Last Airbender as a, uh, allegor- like, as a, um, like, connecting to World War II themes. And I was wow. like, go for it. You're we'll like talk- automatic A. <laughs> well, uh, he had to work for it. I, uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that in a second. Um, definitely, definitely. But, um, no, it's, it's the idea that if you choose the topic you're writing on, mm-hmm. you're going to learn something. But also you're going to be a little bit more accountable because it's definitely, you know, I wanted to do this. And I try to make, and I tell them at the beginning of the semester, make sure this is something you can get on Netflix, Hulu. I don't want y'all just, you know, spending anything extra. So if the ones that want to do video games, I'm like, make sure you already have that video game. Mm -hmm. Like one of my students did Metal Gear Solid 3 um, as his paper and amazing.
0: That's awesome that's so cool yeah
1: and one of my students she chose um blood in blood out and my oh, heart wow. was hap- my heart was happy when she chose that because she was like i'm hesitant to choose this but could i do this? i was like i emailed her back within five minutes i was like yes do this please do
0: this yeah exactly i love those moments too uh <laughs> i also had the moments too where i had students do speeches because um i'm a huge comic book fan like like for the, those who don't know me uh outside of the this podcast uh i'm a huge comic book nerd and so i've taught some public speaking classes where students w- come in and ask me hey can i do a speech on stan lee or or uh or one of those famous comic book artists like that i'm like of course you can of course or could i do it on the marvel cinematic universe or whatever i'm like sure that's fine you know and then what's funny is that i'm totally down for that and i get excited about it being the huge comic book nerd, nerd that i am and then it's like, I've had to do so much research like on comic books and like some of the history of it too, that I, I know enough, you know? And so my students will give speeches and they'll get like certain dates wrong or certain things. And so after their speech, I'll be like, I love the speech, fantastic speech, but the date was wrong here. The title to this character was off. You should have done this. All right. I go full on comic book geek on them, and then you'll hear some of my students go, "Why did you decide to do a comic book writer or something like that?" You know, he's the comic book guy. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just funny having those reactions from my students. You know, mm-hmm. and then and then they're like, "Are are going to get points deducted from this?" I'm like, no, "No, no, no, no. I'm just telling you because I'm I'm like way too more into this than you'll ever know." <laughs> you know and so i love having those moments like they get they get freaked out I'm like oh my gosh is this gonna like take away from like my speech rate i'm like no 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 i'm just telling you this because i'm a huge geek i'm a yeah. nerd <laughs> you know <laughs> but now you know exactly. <laughs> you know you won't forget that date and that title anymore <laughs> you know and then <laughs> so it's funny having those moments with, with my students you know mm-hmm. and it's, it's one of those rapport builders too that they're like oh wow you know uh so that's always fun uh speaking about being a geek and being a nerd um <laughs> and and we and you you brought it up a little bit too uh with the avatar the last airbender you're a mm-hmm. big avatar fan um yes. what about this uh cartoon would you consider it an enemy uh American anime, I guess. I would say American anime. American I'm not going to jump on the,
1: you know, it counts in within the the Japanese anime canon. Yeah. Uh, Nickelodeon was very strategic and using a lot of those elements mm-hmm. but also staging it for an American audience. So I'm not going to totally jump and say yeah. it counts as an anime anime, but it, you know, it's it was an interesting it was unique. I mean what's interesting is when it came out you know I was probably already done with high school early college you mm-hmm. know starting community college
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, so I probably was not their target demographic <laughs> but it just hit so well you know and I just got hooked because mm-hmm. just, you you take a simple story that Seem, uh, what seems like a simple story—you have this central figure who is supposed to bring balance to the world, but you add to the fact that he's a twelve-year-old child mm-hmm. who has been locked away for a hundred years because he was scared of that responsibility. Remember that what mm-hmm. you just said earlier: with great power comes great responsibility. Definitely, and he still wants to be a kid, mm-hmm. and he comes back a hundred years later, and the world that he knew is totally changed where he left and the world was at peace it's now 100 years of war all of the nation the major nations are either at war or his own people have been decimated where he's the last person of his of his people left mm-hmm. so how do you rebuild from that and being a 12 year old child with the expectations that oh you have returned
2: mm-hmm.
1: now you have to save the world But also the side character you know all the the other main and side characters just really built to the story you had prince zuko who was just so focused on capturing the avatar to reclaim his honor but what he needed was actually to deal with his internal conflict Mm -hmm. and the long story of building to that he's just trying to find acceptance um with Katara and Sokka of the Water Tribe wanting to be more than just what they see themselves, for Sokka wanting to be the warrior his father is, but having to figure out that he needs to do it in a different way instead of just being just martially talented, he can use his brain to be just as much of a warrior. For Katara, breaking the gender constraints in certain ways of of. Uh, how waterbending is seen in her tribe, and being a strong, independent woman, um, tough, you know, she was the earthbender who her parents thought because she's blind, she cannot do anything, but she uses her other senses to disp- to master the true essence of her style.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And even if, like for me, some of the like side characters that like um, uncle Iroh, the former general Iroh being that that uncle we all have that gives you that's mischievous but also just gives you that wise advice mm. that you don't think you need but then when you're older and you're hanging out with him you're like that's some deep stuff to you you know just yeah, stuff yeah. like that <laughs> um, that was that uncle Iroh he's one of my favorites because he he is push he pushes enough without pushing too much he uses humor he, he sees the beauty of life um, he knows the horrors of war he knows the be- the the necessity of balance for all but he's going and he, but he and he shows his willingness to be a father figure for his nephew at a time where this nephew is looking his nephew is looking for that you know that connection with his father that he's never gonna have so but you know and also just looking at like certain episodes they deal with you know just like war loss um so not glamorizing war showing the ugliness of it mm-hmm. um, community mm-hmm. a lot of those even before i got back into school and deep dive into a lot of the topics i study you know it really hit and it's like this is this concept of community friendship family um how does community especially from people from different groupings come together to build each other up Mm -hmm. when the world is falling apart
0: yeah wow that's deep like um i'll be honest i haven't i've seen episodes but i have never seen the full series Mm -hmm. and i plan on to like i plan to when i have a chance um now that it's on netflix i definitely want to be it's able easier, to check it out. It's easier now. yeah you can just binge it now um i remember when it first came out though that it would come out like on fridays mm-hmm. and it would come out around the time that my family and i would go eat dinner mm-hmm. and so i was like no <laughs> the one time <laughs> i was gonna try to watch it uh and so i never had a chance to to watch it and i always wanted to because i always heard like so many good things about how powerful the show was mm-hmm. how well written it was and how beautifully animated it was and the same thing with the legend of korra i heard the same yes thing. exactly and...
1: and that
0: was a good one too and i still have to watch it more deeply
1: mm-hmm. uh, but that one you know that's dealing with the thrust into modernity that's mm-hmm. dealing with you know um issues of sexuality and self mm-hmm. it goes in a lot of d- directions that are similar but different from uh last airbender while also keeping those key ties because of that you know each generation of uh avatar will always have a connection to their predecessor
2: mm. so
1: you're gonna have moments where you have those interactions with ang or some of the older avatars or even some of the older characters coming back so i you know it's just for me, I that's one of those series that I can just keep watching um, and, you know.
0: That's cool. I, <laughs> I love those types of cartoons that, even though they're meant for kids, that there's that the writing is so well done that it has all these deeper levels to it. Like the ways that you're, like these themes that you were just mentioning to us. Mm-hmm. It's just so, like so thought out and so well organized and well written that you never unless like you're super deeply invested into it you're not going to realize like wow there's this you know this uh, uh, sexual identity crisis or Mm -hmm. there's this family crisis i mean i'm pretty sure you can pick up on some of the stuff like like you know um but if you're like really dive into it and you know like going into the analytical critical yeah. mind <laughs> of a, a of a academic uh, and doing that you know um I, I think that shows like that are so powerful you know mm-hmm. um and for me one of those shows that i can always go back to and again referencing my comic book nerddom <laughs> is uh, batman the animated series yes. as a kid i remember watching it and i just loved it because it was Batman. Mm-hmm. Now that I'm older, I go back and watch these cartoons. I'm just like, oh my God, this show, it still stands because of oh, yeah. how well it was written and oh, yeah. how well it was animated, you know? And um, I think very few shows have that power and that capability of doing that, you know? So it's, it's really cool. And another thing I was going to bring up to you too, um, when you're mentioning like describing um, Avatar there was uh, two comics that came to mind that I think that you would really enjoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is called punk rock Jesus. Mm, right? Okay. Okay. And, that's, and then uh, that's from Sean Gordon Murphy. And okay. the reason why I mentioned that one is because it's about, and it's kind of like focused on history too. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what it is, it's about this. They like to give a little bit of the plot points, like so semi spoilers for, for my listeners out there. <laughs> okay, semi spoilers, right? But it's not giving away a lot, okay? So, it's about, it's about these people who, these scientists who find the, this cloth, right? And it has like some of the DNA of Jesus Christ. Mm. And so, what they do is they get a little bit of that DNA and they clone Jesus but they clone him as like a teenager right mm-hmm. so the media um dubs it as a second coming of christ right and so now this kid um has to has to deal with that responsibility and try to kind of like the way Aang does in avatar of mm-hmm. like trying to be like am i really this next avatar am i really this next second coming of christ am i really this you know so it's a lot of that internal struggle within so I think that would be a great recommendation for you. Oh, like, yeah, definitely. No, I'm definitely going to check that um, out. Oh, ama- Dude, oh, my God. Sean Gordon Murphy, amazing illustrator, amazing mm-hmm. writer. Fantastic, fantastic book. That's one of my, like, it's one of those comic books that are up, or graphic novels for me that's up there. Um, another one that I was thinking of, too, is Why the Last Man. And that's my all-time favorite comic book series. Mm-hmm. Because, <clears throat> excuse me, it's about this guy by the name of Yorick Brown. Mm-hmm. who becomes the last man on earth mm. and he now has to figure out like he's trying to find his girlfriend who's across the world right and oh. so through a series of events he goes through all this stuff to try to find her and so that's just a brief a brief synopsis of it okay. you know Um, but it's it's really deep it's really really good and that's like it's a 60 issue series okay. i remember i re- I bought all of the graphic novels in the summer and i mm-hmm. knocked it out nice
1: okay no i'm gonna have to check that out and that Is one's that-
0: by brian came
1: brian Kavon. because mm-hmm. that one sounds like has like children of men-esque yes. vibes too yes so.
0: yes definitely
1: awesome. no i'll check those out
0: awesome. yeah so um, they reminded me of that. Like, I was like, oh, I got to recommend these to them. And I'm, I'm throwing this out there in the podcast, too. So if anybody, like, are interested in this type of stuff, you're more than welcome to check that out. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll give you a list of recommendations out, outside of the podcast, too, many. But just, you know, I, I got to give shout outs to those. And another, I also wanted to give a shout out to um, your advisor, too, Dr. Hinojosa, Dr. Mm-hmm. Felipe Hinojosa, because we have to give a shout out to him, yes. because... Like, he does so much for the Latinx community yes, he does. at Texas A&M. And so I just definitely wanted to give a shout-out to Dr. Hinojosa. Um I hope that he's listening and just uh, – we got nothing but love and respect for you, Dr. Inojosa. and thank you for everything you do for the Latinx community uh, at Texas A&M. You know, um, we're very, very grateful for all the stuff that you do. Mm-hmm. He's and nice. st- he really is. He's, he's awesome. Like, one of the coolest professors I've met. Mm-hmm. um so this is this has no transition whatsoever but i just really just want to talk about this too like earlier we had we had a conversation too um besides about pedagogy and and all that but we all, in our earlier conversations that you and i had like away from the podcast we were talking about lucha libre <laughs> and how we're both into this, this lucha libre or and as a kid i was really into wrestling And Mm -hmm. I was actually having a conversation earlier with one of my childhood friends that I've known for like 20 plus years now. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about wrestling and even, even now, every now and then we'll, we'll have this long conversation about wrestling, but like American wrestling and Lucha Libre are so different, Mm
2: -hmm. you know?
0: And, and what I love about wrestling though, and especially being the comic book nerd that I am, is that it has that hero villain storytelling aspect. Yes, but for you, Manny, what made you interested in lucha libre, besides the fact that it's so deeply rooted in Latinx culture too?
1: I think it it was when I moved to Texas in mm-hmm. ninety two ninety three because uh, when I grew up, when I was born in you know I was born and raised in New York and then um, so when I would watch wrestling with my cousins it was mostly like WWF because that's right around the time it was starting to become national, but it still had those regional vibes of you know. WWF, WWE now was mostly in the Northeast, Jim Crockett Promotions, NWA was the South, mm-hmm. st- stuff like that. But, you know, for me, the only person I saw that I could possibly identify during that time was either Tiro Santana or mm-hmm. uh, Savio Vega in the mm-hmm. mid 90s. And then when watching WCW, it was really WCW that really got me into Lucha Libre. Because yeah. you have very Guerrero, you yes. have very Mysterio, you have a very young Hector Garza Jr., Viano 4 and 5. You know, you had Bismarck uh, Jr. And, you know, Lismark Sr. was a pivotal figure in Bucha Libre in the 60s and 70s. Um, and then WWF had the Super Astros show mm-hmm. on Una Visión. So you had uh, El, Sa- El Hijo de Santo, you had <laughs> Negro Casas. You know, so once I moved to Texas, getting you're seeing that more on the national but also having Galavision at the time, I was able to watch AAA and CML. So I was able to see some of the legends of Lucha Libre that were starting to retire, but the young group in the late 90s and early 2000s that really started reshaping Lucha Libre, like Hijo de Pedro Aguayo, um, Hector Garza Jr. when he returned to Mexico, Uh, El Zorro, one of my favorites when it comes to, like, the mid to late 2000s and AAA. Um, Just, like you said, the comic book aspects, the hero and villain. um, I think also how Lucha Libre really captures a lot of the myths, histories Mm -hmm. of Mexico um, in a way that's so different because, like, transition, like, if you look at 60s, 70s, and 80s Puerto Rico, it's blood, hardcore. There's some connection that you can see to U.S. Southern wrestling in Puerto Rican wrestling. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also very much within the different regions of Puerto Rico and the different experiences that, it, that that's how Puerto Rican wrestling was rooted in. With Lucha, especially me living in Texas in the 90s, you know you're getting all of that different those different aspects of Mexican culture or even Tejano culture or like Chicano culture if you're seeing those like like a Rey Mysterio born in San Diego Mm -hmm. got his wrestling roots in Tijuana because of his uncle and I think also that family dynasty aspect Mm -hmm. of wrestling that if you are a wrestler you are part of a family of Mm -hmm. wrestlers that you know your father or your mother or your step your half brothers or whatever you have a long lineage that is in that business and you have to build it up and then as I you know nerded out more on it learning the different aspects of okay here Tijuana has its own style Um, in the 80s the idea the the trios match The three three versus three that really Mm -hmm. started to develop in the 80s because of Los Villanos, um, Los Brazos, and Los Misionarios del Muerte, Mm -hmm. that they really made the the six-man tag match like a big thing Mm -hmm. in Lucha Libre. And now it's like that's just a basic concept of lucha. So a lot of that. And then when I nerded out into the deeper history, just seeing all of that, um, but also, you know, putting the analytical part on learning later just how certain like figures redefined the what was the personas of of, uh, of what was the wrestling good guy or bad guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we look at or the treatment of women's wrestling where women's wrestling was very marginalized and and it's still marginalized, but you're seeing that glacial growth in its perception that at the 84th anniversary cml show you had a mask versus mask match that was co-headlined by two women in the main event Mm -hmm. which is a big deal especially for triple or cml which was a which is a very traditionally conservative booking style of wrestling Mm -hmm. um male dominated but also if you look at the concept of the exotico the exotico you know. in the 60s 70s and 80s was always portrayed as because they're not gender-conforming they're always portrayed as the bad guy but -hmm. then you have someone like Pimpinella escaleta turning that into you know what he's a hero
2: Mm -hmm.
1: here's someone that's a hero or cassandro
2: Cassandro,
1: what, dude. cassandro there was this big piece in the new yorker about cassandro and Cassandra, one of the that they were one of those figures with Pimpin, Pimpinella, that really redefined the idea of the exotico mm-hmm. so you know when i again going down the nerdy rabbit hole and you learn more about it and it's like wow especially those that are fighting against what the establishment or even what mainstream sees as proper identity proper cultural representation which, and it's not and you're seeing them defy that
0: and what's interesting about like wrestling and lucha libre is that especially like in american wrestling what i've seen it is that they really focus on racial stereotypes they mm-hmm. really do like um i re- like i remember like with um you know like with characters like remisterio with eddie mm-hmm. guerreros and and the, i remember how there was the factions of the nwo the wolf pack i remember there's the black and white and then there's also the lwo for a while the Latin <laughs> world order they had like, <laughs> a green red and white i love mm-hmm. that but going back to the stereotypes is that they really emphasize that kind of like like um Kind of like with Eddie Guerrero, I remember that he would come out with the low riders with the hydraulics, yep. mm-hmm. I'm your poppy teachers. Mm-hmm. And you know, like, orale, what's up, Holmes? Kind of like the Chichamarin type, you know? Yeah. And it it was and I love Eddie Guerrero because mm-hmm. he's he's an El Paso win and mm-hmm. he went to the same high school I did. So I got nothing but love for Eddie Guerrero and the Guerrero family. Dude, yeah. in El Paso, he's like, Oh, you know, mm-hmm. he's like, you know, up there, you know and uh, i remember the day that eddie passed away or like a day after that they had an announcement at at school i think i was a freshman or sophomore Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: and the announcements all like we just want to give a moment of silence for a former jefferson uh silver fox uh eddie guerrero who passed away and then they they did that and they did like a little moment of silence for him and then so like for my friends and I who were into wrestling at the time we were just, we took it like oh man so we were like yeah. you know it was heavy for us and so uh, I could uh, see
1: that because I remember when I'm you know I remember when he passed i it hit me hard because I remember when I saw him wrestle for the first time ever on TV I was like something about him resonates with me here's a smaller guy um who is you know he's not changing his name Mm -hmm. that's a big thing you know he is Eddie Guerrero he's Mm -hmm. not changing it to something else he's proud that he is from El Paso and Juarez he's proud of who he is and loves what he does and that always resonated with me even as a kid watching so that him passing that that hit me hard and it goes into one of those discussions of like how do you feel these emotions towards someone you've never met, but mm-hmm. you don't know who has, even if it's like a psychological impact on you, if they've made a impact on you for the positive, you're going to feel that loss. Even if you've never had a, you know, never had any type of connection with them on a personal level.
0: It's, it's definitely a parasocial relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, for those of you who don't know like what parasocial relationships are parasocial relationships are one-sided relationships that one has with a media personality or or whether it's a news anchor whether it's a wrestler in the case that we're talking right now it could even be like a superhero a celebrity crush or whatever (laughs) it might be you know uh and so that's that's what parasocial a parasocial relationship is is that that one-sided relationship that you have and that you build this connection with that and that's what happened is that there's this like it's not like a romantic type of thing either it's more like a like a personal connection that you have that it's like you admire them in a strong way you know Mm -hmm. that you look up to them you kind of idolize them or um or yeah you know like like those two examples you know but yeah like like the example you brought up manny it's truly that dude it really hit home Mm and and for me it literally hit home because you know exactly and um i just remember it was kind of like it's it's like with any athlete that whenever they pass away that you like when kobe passed away or even eddie uh, passed away mm-hmm. it's like you never think that these things are going to happen because you see them and they're kind of like larger than life superheroes exactly and then when it happens it's like wow they're human after all you know
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it it kind of you know it's weird it, it really it's it's one of those things that you never think is going to happen and then it's heavy
1: yeah it kind of reminds you of your own immortality even or your own mortality even more so definitely these larger than life figures even if like they're everyday humans there's nothing extraordinary about them outside of their talent or the hard work they put to Mm -hmm. uh, display their talent to the world you know but because of the pedestal we they are placed on Mm -hmm. either because of media or society or whatnot if they've had that impact it just hits harder
0: definitely definitely um on a much lighter note and uh in relation to like lucha libre still like i always thought that like el santo was Mm -hmm. one of the most interesting figures within wrestling Mm -hmm. like el santo and uh who's the other like famous one too um Blue demon blue demon yeah blue demon and el santo those two like in particular are like Legends mm-hmm. because not only not only are they known for their their ring personalities, but they had movies mm-hmm. they had radio shows and television shows, and they were like transmedia like personalities and characters, you know, and they exactly. even had comic books too, I think
1: yeah, they did, and I think that's the amazing thing when it comes to especially lucha libre. Is you have that superhero vibe personified through, oh, they're in they're in films, they -hmm. have their own TV show. I remember watching some of those Santo movies with my abuelo, and it's like you're treating the especially these two figures who are heroes at the time. Mm -hmm. You're treating them like Batman and Superman, and they're having that platform, and that's not really a platform you see when it comes to, um that like wrestling Mm -hmm. you might have saw you might have seen it in the united states through the rock and wrestle uh years of the 1980s and 90s with hulk hogan becoming Mm -hmm. larger than life having a cartoon being able to be in movies but other than that you know that was done in lucha libre with santo and blue demon in the 60s Mm -hmm. 50s 60s and 70s so that predates you know hogan
0: and and that's stuff that a lot of people aren't aware about, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Because as people of color in minorities, they're gonna kinda like Meep. let's push that to the side in comparison to like, oh, Hulk hogan was the one to do to do this, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, no, like <laughs> El Santo and Blue Demon, we're like fighting vampires, we're fighting <laughs> zombies, we're fighting like like all these crazy things, you know. They were fighting in space, news it it's kinda like it kind of reminds me of like the Machete films, you yes. know. They like were very like exploitation type films in those types of senses, uh, but and very kind of pulpy too. Yeah. you know. Um, but I just thought it was so cool that they were like wearing their luchadores mask. They were mm-hmm. wearing their luchador mask, right? And then mm-hmm. in these like really nice suits, and yet they were fighting. <laughs>
1: exactly.
0: They like, were so baller. It was like it was exactly. like so cool
1: oh and santo yeah. protected that image to his death he, no joke yeah he died and no one ever saw his face in public he died with the mask on and even like the funeral procession where open casket the mask is on
0: mm-hmm. and it's it's in the in the the symbolism uh, i can't talk the symbolism of the mask is is powerful mm-hmm. within lucha libre culture Mm -hmm. it's like if your if your mask is removed it's like that's it you know yeah it's it's like if your identity is revealed it's it's a big big deal Mm -hmm.
1: that's why those mask versus mask match are so big or even the build-up so like even if like where you see the rudo will take the mask off of somebody and just Instead of the person keeping fighting, they're like punching mm-hmm. over, hiding their face because that's their life, that's their identity. Mm-hmm. And if they lose the mask, you're having to create a new beginning, but also show yourself to the world for the first time ever outside of the mask. And for some people, it's, you know, it could be a career ender, but for others, it can either be a new beginning or, you know, I've, it could be someone who's been a luchador for 20, 25 years. Like when Blue Panther finally lost his mask, he'd been wrestling for over 30 years. It was the bigger symbolism that he lost it after taking so many other masks away. It was kind of a passing of the torch for him. Mm. Where for someone else, maybe like when one of the more controversial moments in Lucha Libre history was Eddie Guerrero taking off his mask, without it being a match when he was Mascara Magica.
0: Yeah, I remember that.
1: He took it off and he, I mean, he was getting beaten up by the guys on the opposite end for, after he's taken, after he took his mask off. Mm-hmm. But for other people, you know, it could be a, a new beginning that the mask is off. I can create my own identity out of this and go forward and build something of myself.
0: You know, and that's an interesting idea that the mask like like the, the idea of like dual identities mm-hmm. you know with with the mask it's that we have the persona with mask and the persona without the mask right
2: mm-hmm. and
0: i don't know just that idea itself is just fascinating yeah it's it's, it's you know like how powerful that symbolism is yeah
1: you know? there's actually a documentary on netflix uh, it's called nuestra lucha libre and in one of the episodes, it's discussing um like the different aspects of women in wrestling. And one of them has someone who's just started or has a few years under her belt, but she she's at a mascarada so she has a mask on. Mm-hmm. But she's also a trained psychologist. So oh. in some parts of the day, she is going, goes to work, the mask is off, psychologist time. Then when she goes to wrestle there she goes as saneli wow so and and it shows that point you're making of that duality that two you know two person dual dual personas right there that here she is as a psychologist here she is as a wrestler and how do you how do you bring both elements at sometimes and how do you just detach one from the other
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is like the secret identity of a superhero type of uh dynamic. Exactly. Within oh, Lucha Libre and it's it's just you know, it's 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 really is like fascinating like how there's even the character build up like in comic books. Like mm. I like I really do think like Lucha Libre are like real life personified superheroes. You know, mm-hmm. and 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 the, the, there's the baby faces which are the mm-hmm. heroes, and there's the heels which are the villains, right? And it's just interesting, just how the buildup of these stories begins. You know, mm-hmm. and it's the same way within like a movie, or mm-hmm. with a television show, or a comic book, or any type of media like that. The the narratives that are formed within the the ring, or even exactly. outside the ring with the promos, mm-hmm. things like that too. Yeah, you know? exactly. And even like even
1: the moves, even like mm-hmm. even the actions done by each wrestler where someone who's seen as the personification of a of a, of a, the baby face,
2: mm-hmm.
1: they're gonna be more technically sound or they're gonna be like an air like just majestic in the air, just being able to fly or lock in holds, while the rudo, the bad guy mm-hmm. or the bad woman, they're going to break the rules so that can be anything from low blows to stomping on fingers to eye gouges to any like yeah. they're going to be the roller they can do all that other stuff but they're going to cut corners by just well i'm not you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna fly around with you i'm just gonna hit you right in the face mm-hmm. let's go with that yeah
0: yeah <laughs> it's it's you know it's its own like culture too it really exactly. is exactly um and it's just, it's just fascinating how I love using that word right now. Fascinating. It's really, it's really awesome. I'll I'll change it up today. It's really awesome how, like, it's just how deeply rooted it is within like Latinx culture. Like, Mm -hmm. like I, I just always get a kick out of that. But I know like, even within like, I think it's Japan that there's that new Japan pro wrestling that it's huge over there too. Like Lucha Libre has become huge over there that even like a lot of these Asian wrestlers or even American wrestlers go over there to build up their careers again.
1: Yeah. And a lot of it has to do with a lot of Japanese wrestlers that were smaller in the 70s and 80s. They were not getting a shot in mm-hmm. Japan.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So they would go to Mexico. Mm-hmm. And a few of the smaller Japanese wrestlers, um, one of them, uh, gran hamada uh-huh. he took that style back with him to japan to to allow some of the smaller guys an opportunity um his two daughters wrestled in mexico uh mm. ayako and I, I always forget the other one she was a pretty prominent women's wrestler in mexico and japan um but that's what ultimo dragon from wcw oh yeah he trained in mexico mm-hmm. and then went back to japan And it was when you started to see more emphasis on junior heavyweights with more flying and stuff like that outside of certain dynamics that you're seeing the Lucha Libre style in Japanese junior heavyweight wrestling and vice versa, where you're starting to see a transfer of certain style, Japanese style of wrestling in Mexican wrestling, in Lucha.
0: That's it. That's wow. That's awesome
1: again i've got i went down the nerdy rabbit hole Dude, that's, that's so, so cool
0: I, I i think it's so cool like, i'm like i'm loving it i'm loving it oh uh, i think that's so cool uh wow that's really cool and, then, and like 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 just in this whole conversation i'm thinking back of like wrestlers like when i was young like i remember obviously Rey Mysterio, eddie guerrero and then i was thinking of, uh we even talked about uh la parca for a bit we talked mm-hmm. about him that his costume was cool it was just like all black and kind of had like a skeleton on yep. top of it yep. it was it was really cool and he was famous with like his chair yes he like he had a full, one of those the metal foldable chairs. Mm. he hit people with the chair uh, he's still
1: he, he's still going today him and his son so, yeah yeah it's amazing or like um one guy i used to watch in triple a that later he made it big in japan ricky marvin he was considered like him, Rey Mysterio, and Volador Jr. were considered like the, the ones that reshaped the high-flying style in Lucha Libre, where it would just be like, just a straight tope dive, mm-hmm. where they were doing a lot of the flips and other stuff, and that's become, you know, just normal now in mm-hmm. Lucha
0: Definitely. So- I was also thinking of like, and speaking of like high flyers that are like very fast paced, I was thinking of in the WCW days, and he, and this wrestler came from like the the Lucha Libre, it might have been AAA too, is uh, Juventud Guerrero.
1: Mm-hmm. Juventud Guerrero, yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. And I was, th- I just remember that he was like, when him and Rey Mysterio would have matches together, it was just like bouncing balls you know yeah, like, exactly. pew, 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 pew. they're just so it was so fast-paced you know mm-hmm, exactly and, and uh, it, 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 they were high flying they were just spinning all over the ring it was cool and i think for a time juventud had a mask too right
1: yeah it was based off of his father's masks because his father was a like very prominent urlop in both mexico city and a lot of the other regions in Mexico, Mexico City is like the epicenter of one of the epicenters of wrestling in Mexico. Um, that's like if you make it big, you make it to Mexico City. But you know, he's just, he's second generation through his father, Remy is second generation through mm-hmm. his uncle. So again, those family dynamics with yeah, him. they're lot. the next generation that they're so different from how their um, predecessor mm-hmm. wrestled. Because both of their like, rey Sterio's uncle was a brawler, uh, Juvenal guerrera's father was a brawler, you know. And then these two are just fat, just poetry in motion.
0: It really, it really, yeah, it, they really are. Um, wow, yeah, definitely. And then another one I thought about too. Like I'm just having like nostalgia. That's what I'm having. <laughs> that's what I was just like, whoa, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm having like these nostalgic flashbacks, you know. Um, i was thinking of also psychosis yeah yeah like i remember thinking his mask was super cool too like Mm -hmm. i was like wow um do you like like do you have any like luchador mask yourself no I do not surprisingly <laughs> <laughs> I've always wanted a luchador mess like I've always wanted one just to have like my family and my girlfriend are probably just like I not another thing too not another like, nerdy thing, thing. Yeah, not God. another thing, no. uh, <laughs> but uh I've always wanted one just like to say I have it you know um there's the the our IT person at, in the communication department her name is Mel shout out to Mel. Um, she has a luchador mask I'm like me well, i told I told her mal I'm like legit jealous that you have one of these in your office. I think that is so dope like if I would you need
1: ask, to ask her where she got it from i do i something? do
0: um I need to ask her you know, but uh I just think that it's so cool how uh like the luchador image has really like uh has really expanded in so many levels
1: hmm and a lot of that is through it you know that the remembrance of it through the southwest the remembrance of it for certain figures that have made it to mainstream success or um like even how like like rey Mysterio, um now with um, lucha underground that came mm-hmm. out a few years ago where you had robert rodriguez the director as part of that um that setup so you're having lucha coming a little bit more into the mainstream while it's still not being totally taken over
0: because by... oh go ahead no go, go go ahead no i was done so oh okay uh well I, I remember that lucha underground was kind of it was very it was that was like obviously scripted like wrestling mm-hmm. we know is scripted but this one was like in your face scripted it was like a mm-hmm. movie like it yeah. was like like it was highly produced it was like mm-hmm. really good quality and then it, it was kind of like a telenovela in a way exactly exactly They took get to that next step yeah because as it is like like wrestling and lucha libre is is i always called it a like a very testosterone heavy telenovela
1: mm-hmm.
0: and uh but this one really took that telenovela aspect and like took it up like a hundred notches. Yeah, I would agree definitely. Because like their boss character, what was it like, Cuervo?
1: Yeah, uh, Dario Cueto.
0: Yes, Cueto, Cueto. Um, and like he was kind of like that kind of villainous type character, kind of sleazy ish. Like sneaky, I don't know how to like how to describe it like person, uh. But uh, he, it, yeah, it, it just it was it, it had that Robert Rodriguez vibe, like it really did. Like, you would have to see it. Like, if you all have a chance, to YouTube some of these videos, you'll see. You know, it's it's it was just like the lighting and everything about it was just very like overproduced, and it just seemed like a telenovela, but mixed in with wrestling it's 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 awesome it's true it's true <laughs> it's, it's awesome y'all have to check this out um <laughs> I, I think that's a perfect note to end on manny this was yeah, I think so. <laughs> this was a fantastic conversation manny thanks so much man i really appreciate it this was awesome i'm glad we got to talk about your research we got to talk about uh avatar for a bit and lucha libre man
1: thanks for having me this was fun i enjoyed this
0: yeah, dude, we're gonna need a we're gonna need to hang out sometime soon, like once all this pandemic stuff's over and we can geek out some more. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> Alright, everybody, again, thank you so much, Manny. Uh again, thank you so much, Manny, for being a guest on this week's Academics and Amigos. For more on Academics and Amigos, be sure to check out our Instagram, our Twitter, and our Facebook pages. So be sure to check out our social media network and Uh, Give us a follow, give us a like, tweet at us, and we will be more than welcome to carry this conversation forward with you all. So with that being said, thank you for listening, and remember, be cool and stay awesome. Bye.